This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are beginning Season 8. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and he is the Duns Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago and he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. I also want to welcome Heidi Schlumpf, Executive Editor of National Catholic Reporter. Welcome Heidi, welcome Dan. How are you both doing today? Doing great, David. Good to be with you. Heidi, good to be with you. Yeah, great. Good to see you guys again. I, I know it's been oh, a few weeks since we were last together. We did a bonus episode over the Christmas break, but otherwise we've just been out of the loop. And I'm wondering, Heidi, how was your holiday and how are things in the new year for you? January turned out to be a busy news month. I thought it was going to be just quiet, catching up on my email sort of thing, and it sure wasn't. Between the the sad news of what happened at the Capitol, which we talked about in our bonus episode, but also then the inauguration and a lot of focus on Biden's Catholicism, which we're going to talk about later. So it's been busy, but all good. And we're expecting a big snowstorm here in Chicago. So I'm excited about that. I, I do like winter. And Dan, how are you doing? What's been going on with you? Similarly, we're a couple weeks into the semester now here at CTU. We started very early on January 4th, and so we're almost a month in uh, at this point. It's hard to believe. Time flies. But, you know, with with everybody, it's more of the same. We're living in the pandemic era and grateful that I'm not a news reporter because, as Heidi mentioned, there's been so much of it. It's been nice since the inauguration to, as a lot of people have said on social media, actually get a reasonably restful night's sleep to wake up in the morning and not have headlines dictated by kind of crazy tweets and these sorts of things. But to see competent, mature adult leaders in return to the government is incredibly refreshing. So I'm looking at the silver linings. I'm looking at the, the positive things in the midst of continuing challenges. But other than that, hanging in there and then plugging along. David, what's new with you? My family and I, we weathered things pretty well. I had a significant birthday in mid-January. I turned 50. My goodness. Happy birthday. And my, my daughter turned 11. Thank you. Thank you. And as a part of that, our family, I guess it's not related to birthdays, but it's more just related to the pandemic stuff. Our family decided to start to do the couch to 5K training. And so we're in our second week of that. And it's 
if anybody's ever done it, it starts very easily with a little, like you run for a minute and then you rest for a minute and a half and you run for a minute and you rest for a minute and a half and you do that for about 20 minutes. And then it slowly gets more sadistic (laughs) as those running times get longer and the rest kind of attenuates and still really am enjoying it. And we're running in pairs. So I run with my daughter and, and my wife runs with our son. And I think that's been good bonding time for the family. So all of that is good. And I do feel better for having done it, even though in the midst of doing it, I don't always like it. (laughs) Wait, am I going to be the only non-runner in this trio? Peer pressure, Heidi, peer pressure. Yeah. I'm a walker. It's so easy, though. Just Google Couch to 5K, and it'll be easy to get started if you, if you want to, if you want to. Heidi, you mentioned that you thought that January was going to be a slow news month, and I, I guess I just have to ask you, is it ever going to be a slow news month again, ever? Is that even a possibility now? Yeah, I don't think there's ever going to be whole months that are slow, but it used to be a little bit more of an up and down. You had days where there wasn't breaking news. I'm hopeful that in a Biden presidency, things might not be as crazy. But I think a lot of it has to do with the pandemic and people being at home more, being on screens most of their day, and just consuming a lot more news. So I don't want to complain. That's good for the news business. And we have to have something to give people who want to be reading or consuming news in other ways, whether it's podcasts or video. So it's exciting too, but it just can be exhausting. And I'm trying to keep some balance in my life with enjoying family time. And winter is a good time to snuggle into the house and do some of my indoor activities too. I'm a big knitter. So you can do your couch thing. (laughs) I sit on my couch and knit. You could run and knit. Theoretically, there are people <laughs> may not who be do safe it. though. Is that right? Oh. You know what everybody's knitting now is Bernie's mittens. Ah, yes. <laughs> I have to admit, I love those memes. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have too. It's been interesting to see on Twitter and social media that even folks who would not identify politically with somebody like Bernie Sanders. Everybody still gets a kick out of it. And I enjoyed watching him. He was a guest on Seth Meyers' late night show and in true Bernie form, totally unfazed by the whole thing. He's, yes, I'm aware of it. My staff showed me these things. He thinks it's funny, but then he's, let's get back to business, (laughs) which makes it all the better. Fun fact for everybody, they're not knitted. They were originally knitted. They were made from recycled sweaters, which is like a big thing in the craft world to take felted you take sweaters that you have you ever accidentally washed a sweater and it shrunk and the, the fibers get real tight and it's a fabric and then you can cut it and sew it into things like mittens. And the story of the the teacher who made the mittens and, and sent them to him is really lovely. I'm really into the whole upcycling thing, taking things and making them into something else useful. So that was some encouraging January news. I I had no idea about that story. And I love the idea of Bernie just being like completely unfazed by it. Like that we got business to do. Let's get back or whatever. That's good impression. Really, that's, that's really cool. Good. And Dan, I, I know that we've talked about this before. You're not traveling like you used to be traveling, but I'm sure that you're still doing keynotes and giving speeches and, and speaking at places and all that. How How has that been going for you? It's going fine. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to speak to folks and for the folks who turn out to listen to these talks, whether at a university or through a diocese or what have you. But I think I've shared this before in the last season. I I do miss the interaction with people. I know that's a cliche. It's an obvious statement at this point. But 
yeah, we keep doing that. I've got a bunch of those set for the spring, including Thursday, February 4th. There's an upcoming lecture, uh, the SCOTUS lecture here at CTU that I'm delivering. All listeners are welcome. You know, go to ctu.edu slash events to, to learn more. I sound like an NPR ad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it's better than nothing. It's getting old. It's getting old. So I'm grateful that the vaccines are rolling out. I know we've had some difficulties in terms of their distribution and shortages and all sorts of things. Of course, we always see the worst case scenarios reported. They get the most headlines. But my prayer, my hope is that the new administration actually has a plan and are relying on experts and, and people who know what they're doing. So my hope is in the coming months, maybe summertime, maybe certainly fall, we can get back to seeing one another in person. That'd be lovely. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. It'd be good to actually sit down with the two of you. I, I miss you. Let's go ahead and get to the show. Today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the inauguration and what happened a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be talking about a set of dueling statements, one from Archbishop Gomez of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and a response of sorts by Archbishop Blaise Supich of Chicago. And then we're going to be talking about the 1776 Commission report that was dropped right before the inauguration and then summarily withdrawn by the Biden administration. Now, those of you that have been with us for a while, you know this, but if you're just here for the first time, I want to make sure you know that every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We have got bonus segments for you friends of Frank over on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash francisfxpod. And if you want to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, that's also at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you have a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. We will be back in just a moment with the show. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Father Dan Horan. Every couple weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. One week ago, Joseph R. Biden Jr. was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States, and Kamala Harris was sworn in as vice president at an inauguration ceremony unlike any previous one. The most striking difference was the masked attendees and the intentional absence of large crowds. The combination of a global coronavirus pandemic and the Capitol insurrection by domestic terrorists two weeks earlier ensured that the event would have a different look and feel. And yet there was also a subtler distinction on display, one that may have been easily overlooked by many viewers at home, but one that was easily recognized by those with eyes to see and ears to hear, to put it in biblical terms. As NCR national correspondent Christopher White put it, quote, in the roughly 48-hour period of Biden's inaugural events, there will be no shortage of Catholic signs and symbolism. Some were already on display upon Biden's arrival in the nation's capital January 19th. The first formal event of the inaugural ceremonies was a memorial service for the victims of COVID-19, which took place near the reflecting pool the night before the swearing-in. Cardinal Wilton Gregory, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., offered prayers at the invitation of the incoming Biden administration. 
The next day featured not only the swearing-in of the second Roman Catholic president of the United States, but an array of American Catholics, from Jesuit priests to Supreme Court justices to musical performers to the young poet who rightly stole the show and captured the hearts and imaginations of the nation. Dan, you watched the inauguration. What did you think about the symbols of Catholicism present throughout? I thought a lot about it. <laughs> Certainly as a Catholic, as a friar, a priest, as a theologian, as an opinion columnist who thinks all things Catholic, as a co-host of a podcast like this, I'm always thinking about this. But it was clear to me through a lot of the commentary, both that day of on social media, but in pieces that followed, that others were taking note of this as well. And it was striking to me for a number of reasons. Heidi, you listed the Jesuit priests. I, I think of Kevin O'Brien, who celebrated Mass that morning with the Biden family and the invited guests, including the Republican and Democratic leaders in the House and Senate. I was thinking about, obviously, Leo O'Donovan, former Georgetown University president, extraordinary theologian. Those of us who are in the Guild, who are theologians, know Leo very well. He's a gentleman and a scholar and a kind person and a brilliant thinker. And also, you couldn't tell from his very appropriate Roman collar, black suit attire, but he's also quite a stylish dresser. So he's something of a fashionista in the Catholic theological world, but you'll have to become a theologian, go to grad school to learn about that. In any event, the list is extraordinary. Here's a non-exhaustive list. You have the president of the United States, you have the speaker of the house, you have six Supreme Court justices, you have numerous senators and representatives, you had J-Lo, Lady Gaga, Amanda Gorman, the extraordinary poet, and even at the inaugural celebration that evening that was hosted by a, a shivering, frozen Tom Hanks, the last kind of piece of the night was a fireworks display that involved Katy Perry, the musician singing her song Firework, coordinated to, with the fireworks, which I have to say... I don't care for fireworks. I can't remember if I've talked about this in the previous seven seasons, but I'm not. It's not that I have anything against fireworks. I'm just not impressed. My my general approach to fireworks has been: you've seen one display of fireworks, you've seen them all. Right. That said, I was very impressed. I was moved by the coordination and that song, which I've really liked. It's a pop song. It's not. People can go after me if they want, if they disagree, but but I've always enjoyed it, and it was cool. Anyways, Katy Perry herself has Catholic connections, not only in her own upbringing, but there was, if I remember correctly, some news stories some years ago because she was trying to buy a property, an old convent in California from a community of religious sisters. And this, <laughs> the Catholicism overtly was present in terms of the invocation, in terms of Joe Biden's rhetoric, but it was so subtly present too, not only in the faith traditions that formed so many of these entertainers and politicians and creative types and so forth, but also in, in kind of the spirit of the place. And I'll have to say, I, I really think it was, as our colleague Michael Sean Winters and others have pointed out, it was a very positive presentation of what Catholicism can offer the U.S. in terms of its public discourse and civil kind of presence. And it's in stark contrast to what the leadership of the USCCB, which we'll talk about later, is presenting in terms of a public Catholicism. What did you two think about this? David, yeah, what, what were your thoughts? 
Well, I, I wanted to ask about a public display of religion, uh, two lessons in contrast. So I, I really like the way that you've laid out the kind of subtle Catholicism of this event around the inauguration. Like it wasn't an event that was hitting you over the head. It, it's instead a, an event that, that, that sort of was suffused with this religious sentiment and these religious practitioners throughout. I'm thinking about the contrast with the event that President Trump held, where he cleared out the square with tear gas and then was holding the Bible in front of the church across the street from the White House. These are both, in some ways, displays of civic religion, but they have very different messages. And I'm just wondering, I guess I would pitch the question to you, Heidi, like from the standpoint of National Catholic Reporter, from the standpoint of your work and others' work, like how are you thinking about these two different religious narratives in public life in America right now? First, let me go on the record as being very pro-fireworks. I think it's important to (laughs) have that be said. I do recognize that for veterans and some people, fireworks can be disturbing, and I get that, and dogs. But I love a good fireworks display. And also, I loved Lady Gaga's dress, so I know there was a lot of discussion about that. The religion of the day was, of course, not surprising to us at NCR. We'd been talking about Joe Biden's Catholicism all along throughout the campaign and and once he uh, won the election. It is fun to have one of your guys in the White House and be able to cover a big day like Inauguration Day from the religious perspective. The part that was interesting to me was the liturgy at St. Matthew's Cathedral that morning, which was not open either to the press or to the public, but Father O'Brien's homily was later released. And we had an article that came from the music minister and director of liturgy at the cathedral who helped plan the mass. And he walked through all the readings and the prayers and the music of the mass. And it really just gives you a feel for how it was important for Joe Biden to start his day that way, and then to invite all these other people from Inauguration Day to join him for that liturgy. Not everybody likes to use this term, but it's an evangelization of sort in that it's presenting our faith to people in a very different way than, as you pointed out, David, the holding up the Bible triumphantly after clearing the protesters. So over the weekend in the New York Times, Russ Douthat had a column where he talked about this is liberal Catholicism's moment and had some advice for liberal Catholics about what to do. But I would have to agree with at least that part. We do have somebody in a very prominent position who's a good Vatican II Catholic of his generation and whose faith informs his everyday life, whether it's his personal life and his work life. And I think it's going to be very interesting to cover, and I think it could be very positive for the church, although, like we said, in the next segment, we're going to talk about ways that that maybe it won't be. What do you think? I I, I totally agree. I I thought Ross Duthat's column... (laughs) I could you could see him really clenching his jaw at, at having to write that. I thought Elizabeth Diaz's uh, piece in the Times, which was a reported piece about the kind of Catholicism of Biden and its impact on the administration and everything, was better, certainly better. And and but in any event, I agree that this is going to be interesting to see. I, I think, and again, we'll talk about this more in the next segment. But to me, there's a stark contrast between. Well, I agree with you, Heidi, with this term. Evangelization is not in the Christian tradition about beating people over the heads with anything, with dogma, with harsh rhetoric. And I think 
the U.S. Catholic Church has been disproportionately represented by loud, vocal, both some church leaders, we see this in the leadership of the USCCB, but also rogue entities, these sort of blogs and media companies and, and others and individuals who display not evangelization, but a harsh proselytizing apologetics, where they want to call out who they consider to be unworthy, who's not Catholic enough, who doesn't forefront abortion as the first sort of their amended note in the Apostles' Creed. Last time I checked, abortion doesn't show up in the core tenets of the faith. And yet, if, if you were an outside observer or an alien who came in to visit Earth for the first time and you saw this thing called Catholicism, if you looked at the U.S. church, you would assume that was the most important thing. And I think what I found so refreshing about Biden's inauguration and the way that he carries his faith and lives it out authentically, sincerely, meaningfully, and how it's been such an anchor for him and how it governs his own behavior. And you'll hear this from both sides of the aisle, his Senate colleagues of many decades and others in Washington, is that he's a genuinely good person. And that should be the measure, as Jesus points out, of our Christianity, of our discipleship. And David, you mentioned the contrast with four years ago, the inauguration. Famously, Trump's inaugural address refer to American carnage. And I had tweeted out this line where it seems to me we've moved from American carnage to American caritas, American charity or love, which is really what I see displayed. And I don't think you have to beat people over the head to be a true Catholic, to be a, a, a true disciple of Christ. In fact, to do seems to me quite the opposite. Is that your sense too? Well, that, but also just thinking about the kind of symbolism of religion, the way in which religion is presented as a, either a, a battering ram or as a balm to stay with the alliteration of carnage and caritas, battering ram and balm. When we look at the event of the, the church being cleared out and Trump walking across the street like a conqueror and holding up the Bible as a photo op, that is a particular way of doing civic religion. And it's a type of evangelization, to use the term that you're using. It shows a certain type of person who is set to respond to that, the kind of Christ the conqueror or onward Christian soldiers approach of we're going to be the militant victors of this culture war battle. What I like much better is what we're seeing and what we're talking about here, this Catholicism that is suffused throughout the whole of an event like the inauguration, where it's not saying this is a Catholic event, not saying this is a Christian event, but saying these are people who hold these tenets of their faith very dearly, and or some of them loosely, but they're all affected by it, and they're all coming together to share this moment, which is not a religious event. It's not about creating a civic, a kind of civic Catholicism, but it's about being Catholic in public in a way that doesn't create theocracy, but helps to support democracy. And that, to me, I think is the important difference between something like Trump's event, which is a theocratic event, and uh, a more democratic event. Yeah, I would just jump in and also add the historical comparison to the first Catholic president. So John F. Kennedy, of course, had to be cautious about wearing his Catholicism on his sleeve, as they say, because there was concern that he couldn't be independent of the church enough to govern effectively as the first Catholic president. And so we really have come a long way in those 60 years in that this second Catholic president now feels very comfortable 
being open about his faith. But in the same way with JFK, it does not translate then to the Pope is telling Joe Biden how to govern and what laws we should have in the United States. And I think some of the folks in our church think that's what should happen, that if you're a Catholic politician, then you enact laws or are the executive executor of laws that match exactly with the laws of our church. We're not going to see that, but we can see someone who's living their faith, which I think can be tremendously positive, as you've said. Dan, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree entirely. My column last week for NCR highlights this. You know, what does the church actually say about the purpose of government? And it's quite simple. It has nothing to do with implementing, quote unquote, Catholic moral norms into the public square. The purpose of government is, or the state is to protect and promote the common good. And, and listeners, regular listeners to the Francis Effect have heard us talk about this forever. I, I agree about what actually is is the role of evangelization. I think this term is really important. And I think it's a term, again, to put the onus on the shoulders of the, the leadership of the Bishop's Conference. You look at folks like Bishop Barron and others who have really understood evangelization in an incredibly narrow way. Their understanding of this new evangelization that John Paul II called for was really about chastising so-called Western democracies, blaming them for pluralism and interreligious contexts and secularization and so forth in an aggressive, proselytizing, apologetic way. And I'm really struck by, there's been a number of, including Ross and Elizabeth Diaz and others, who, who talked about the affinity between Joe Biden's lived Catholicism and the ministry and leadership of His Holiness Pope Francis. And I think this is not to be overstated. It's really important. And I'm thinking of the phrase that a colleague of mine, Father Steve Bevins, a retired theologian and, and missiologist, he wrote an article a couple of years ago called Pope Francis's Missiology of Attraction. And he gets this phrase actually from Benedict XVI of all people who, who coined this that said basically evangelization takes place through attraction. If you look at Jesus, people were drawn to him. You look at the founder of my own order, Francis of Assisi, people were drawn to him, not because of their harsh, divisive, condemning rhetoric. People weren't drawn to Jesus because he was condemning people to hell or telling them that they were unworthy to come to the Last Supper. For heaven's sake, Judas and Peter were there and they betrayed and denied him. So I don't want to hear anybody talking about who should or shouldn't be admitted to Holy Eucharist. That's a side note. But really, what I think is powerful that was symbolized in the inauguration, and I hope to see more of this, is a lived public Catholicism that isn't about shoving things in people's faces, but is about attracting people through the goodness of our charity, of our love, of our support, of our care, especially for the least among us, which is the whole purpose of government. Well, and we will continue this conversation in our next segment when we pick up the ideas about dueling visions for how religious leadership in the Catholic Church should be functioning in the public sphere. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. On Inauguration Day, Joe Biden received a lot of congratulatory notes, including a positive one from Pope Francis. In it, the Pope urged our country's second Catholic president to work toward the common good and to pursue policies, quote, marked by authentic justice and freedom, unquote. 
But a note from the U.S. Bishops' Conference head, Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, was decidedly more mixed and lengthy. Gomez offered prayers for Biden, but also outlined areas of policy disagreements, saying, quote, Our new president has pledged to pursue certain policies that would advance moral evils, unquote. The policies that concern Gomez are contraception, marriage, gender, religious liberty, and of course, abortion, which he described using the term preeminent, thus doubling down on the controversy from last November's U.S. bishops meeting over the use of that term. Some bishops quickly offered their support of the statement, but Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago, in a rare rebuke of a fellow bishop, called the statement ill-considered for being critical of the new president on Inauguration Day. Supich also blasted the process of how the statement was released. Some anonymous Vatican officials have also criticized Gomez's statement. Heidi, what are we to make of this? What does it mean for the U.S. bishops and with their relationship with the new president? Well, David, I don't think it's a good sign. I guess I could start by saying that. So even as Joe Biden was giving his inaugural day speech calling for unity in our country, we are having this disunity even among our church leaders front and center. So I think it was a sad mar to an otherwise uh, pretty positive day. It started with the release of the statement in a strange way. It came out through the Catholic News Agency before it was even posted to the U.S. Bishops Conference site. So it was leaked to a more conservative, traditionalist sort of news outlet. And then to have this statement, then they had controversy over whether it was being held up by the Vatican. And some news reports tried to make it sound like the Vatican was holding it up based on its content, which I think it might be true, but it also was its timing in that they were releasing their statement or Gomez was releasing his statement before the Pope's statement even reached Biden. So once it did come out, people right away noticed that this had not gone through the administrative committee. It likely is a project of that ad hoc committee that was created at the November bishops meeting this ad hoc committee to try to work with Biden. And if on Biden's inauguration day, they couldn't just say something nice, I don't think that bodes well for what the relationship's going to be like going forward. I'm anticipating it being adversarial, given the tone of this statement. So Archbishop Gomez of the USCCB, maybe listeners need a refresher. What power does he actually have or what role does he actually play? As the head of the USCCB, does he actually have control over other bishops? Does he actually speak in the same way that the Pope speaks, but just for North America? What is the power of Archbishop Gomez in this particular moment? It's a good question. The short answer is no. There, there are certain canonical provisions for when regions, a, a regional group of bishops speaks in one voice. So we think, for instance, of the voter guide, the quadrennial voter guide forming consciences for faithful citizenship that the USCCB puts out every major election year. That has the force of ordinary magisterium that's adopted by the respective bishops. But the USCCB in and of itself has no authority to speak of. It is it is a way in which the as mandated by the church that the, the regional bishops get together to do a number of things, address issues that are pertinent to the community. There's part of its collegiality and fraternity. 
the president and the other leaders in the USCCB are elected from among their body. So it's the other bishops who select them. It's it's roughly analogous to professional societies. So the CTSA for theologians or the American Dental Association for dentists. You know, does the president of the American Dental Association have any actual power over other dentists? The answer is no. But when the ADA speaks with one voice, there is the presumption of adoption of whatever that statement or guidance or instruction may be. This is exactly where Cardinal Supich speaks up because he was quite furious. There was no way to, to avoid this. And he's not the only one. A lot of bishops were very upset to see a statement come out ostensibly under their name and without their consultation, without their notice, and certainly without their approval. And that's where you get Cardinal Supich describing it as ill-advised, which is a polite way to put it. Picking up from what what we were talking about in the last segment, like there there are certainly Catholics out there who would look at the inauguration and see all of the Catholics that we have lifted up as being part of the inauguration, and they would shake their heads and they'd say, tisk tisk tisk, those are Catholics in name only. These are not real Catholics. And that kind of divisiveness of creating a, a substandard category of Catholics is a real problem that we've talked about before on the show. What I'm curious about is are we seeing that same type of divisiveness and second-class status at the level of the USCCB? Is this an indication that Gomez is thinking, I'm speaking for the real Catholics here, and then when someone like Archbishop Supich speaks up, the reaction is, oh, of course those Catholics would speak up because they're not really in line with the true Catholic teaching, and I'm scare-quoting that. But I'm wondering if how are we as outsiders to these conversations, not knowing what went on behind the scenes, to take this when the USCCB is supposedly speaking with unity, but it's clear that there's disunity? Well, just briefly, two things. One is, I think we're starting to see that emerge more publicly and more clearly, that the kind of cultural political divides that we see on the internet in particular around questions of Catholicism and public office and so forth is starting to fracture among the bishops in ways that th these men of good conscience can no longer keep quiet. I think that's what compelled Cardinal Supich, and I think in a wise way, to, to make a public statement. And it's a public statement in communion, interestingly enough, with the Holy Father, who, as we heard through sources, is very upset with the direction of, again, not the USCCB as such, but those who are currently in leadership there. I, I think the second thing is th this business about determining who is or isn't quote unquote, really Catholic or Catholic in name only. By the way, that Sino or Kino or whatever Catholic in name only, only acronym is, is something taken right out of the Republican playbook, this rhino category. So that needs to be dismissed immediately because one cannot actually determine, despite Robert Bellarmine's best attempts in the 17th century and others to try to identify visible public markers of one's Catholicity. It's something that's ultimately known to the confessor, to the individual, and to God. This kind of nonsense, and David, you said something really important, which is based on whether or not somebody publicly accepts certain church teachings or like what's key to the faith, these issues of moral norms are really important, but they're not the most important. They are not essential to our faith. What's essential to our faith is in the creed. And again, I'm not saying it's not important, but you're, what you're seeing is the creation among some bishops reflective of the broader public where there is, I would say, the construction of idolatry. There is a false faith, a false focus, a false emphasis on things that are not as important as individuals would like them to be. Yeah, and I'll just jump in here to to emphasize that 
Cardinal Supic speaking out, and he, he spoke out on Twitter with a, a Twitter thread um, about this and criti- criticizing another individual bishop is pretty remarkable. So I don't know if the the dentists are like this, but the bishops are very careful not to criticize one another publicly. And that's why for some Catholics, this may be news that there's polarization even within the leadership of our church. People who follow the bishops' conference and individual bishops closely probably already knew this. There's been uh, disagreement for a long time, even if you go back to the 80s when they did the statements on the economy and war and peace, there were bishops who were not fully on board with those statements either. But there was a process of discussion and changes and voting and various things that went along. The process of this statement, and we're seeing this because increasingly the USCCB is doing a lot of statements. So as Biden was signing all these executive orders, in the first hours and days of his presidency, it seemed like there was a statement from the USCCB about almost every one. So these number of statements that come out, they don't always come from the whole conference. They may come from the chair of a specific committee, or they may come from the president, from Gomez. It is true that not every statement has to be voted on by every bishop in the USCCB, but usually it goes through some level of committee. And in the case of a statement from the president, it would normally go through the administrative committee. Now, some have claimed that in an emergency situation, the president can release a statement, but the inauguration was not an emergency. We knew that was coming and that it was going to be January 20th. So there's a lot to unpack here, but it is pretty extraordinary and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I want to pick up on one thing that you said, Heidi, about process, and this speaks to the larger question of what we're talking about here and this notion that I raised of kind of the Catholics in name only. I've gotten into conversations personally and on social media and in more formal settings around this where we have a formal process if someone is violating the norms and the expectations of the catholic church we have formal processes in place put there by canon law about how a person might be and i'm going to scare quote this but brought up on charges if you will how that could be adjudicated in a public formal setting like we have standards for that but we also have this kind of soft process this kind of third way process where that formal action is never taken and yet people in authority or people who speak as if they have authority will float the idea of oh they're not really catholic or what have you and in both cases both at the level of the usccb and at the level of trying to deprive a person of their good name and status as a member of the catholic faith I'm very wary of informal processes or these kind of de facto declarations that just happen almost from nowhere. I really like public formal processes. And so it bothers me and it worries me when a person is declared to not be properly Catholic, but no formal process of bringing any kind of charge or proof has been gone through. It also bothers me to hear that the bishops are not following their own formal processes of how they arrive at these kind of magisterial pronouncements, or let me say pronouncements that are heard as magisterial. And I'd love to hear y'all's That's thumb. a really important point. Magisterium means teaching authority and bishops by virtue of holding the office exercise a kind of magisteria. And the USCCB as a collective body can exercise ordinary magisterium that's adopted in the respective dioceses by the bishop of that diocese. The only person who has universal magisterium is the pope. And that's a special charism of the Bishop of Rome. And so these kinds of statements are not 
to be very technical here, they're not magisterial. They're not exercising teaching authority. They're statements, reactions, their public commentary, their press releases, which serve a purpose, as Heidi was saying. The committees that focus on certain things, whether it's immigration, whether it's family life issues, what have you, they have a right to, to comment on these things publicly, and we have a right to listen to that. But it's different from, from teaching with authority in the sense that one is exercising magisterium in a technical sense. I, I think one question I keep coming back to is I have no idea what they're thinking. I have no idea, honestly, what some of the folks who are behind, for instance, the statement that was signed by Archbishop Gomez are thinking because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in terms of the mission of the church. It makes no sense in terms of the mission of evangelization. It makes no sense in terms of the right exercise of the pastoral office of the bishop. And the only thing I can say is that over the last four years, especially as the culture wars have increased, a lot of these bishops who are currently in prominent positions of leadership in the USCCB have already made their bed and they're lying in it. And that bed was the bed of the you know culture war. The, the, it was the bed of Trumpism. It was the bed of these kind of politics that do not align, on the one hand, you know, this one issue of judici- judicial appointments and the hopes of diminishing Roe versus Wade and so forth superseded everything else. It was preeminent for some of these bishops. And as a consequence, they stayed silent, which is a sin. It's a sin of omission to not speak out against the injustices of the previous administration on a whole host of issues, which at best the USCCB was lukewarm and at worst never addressed head on, including, as has been made public, they never mentioned Trump's name or the Trump administration in any of their direct press releases or commentary. Notice the difference already, not only with the Obama administration previously, but with the first week of the Biden administration. It is obvious, it is patently clear, and I don't get it. But it's something that is boiling up and it's going to be a problem. Dan, I love your question about what are they thinking. And I I like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt that they have good intentions and are probably trying to do what they think is best for the church. But And I would clarify that Gomez's statement did not rule on whether Biden is a Catholic or not. It was used by people on social media and other places to then support that allegation. What What it did do was point out areas of policy disagreement. But I do think what we're going to see next, and I'm making a prediction here based on some tips and an anonymous reporting that says the next thing that's going to come out is going to be more direct and personal, and it's going to be about who gets to receive communion and will be aimed directly at the president. And so I think we're going to be getting back to that, that whole wafer wars issue of using communion as a bludgeoning stick to try to get people in line, if not about their personal beliefs, but also about how they then act when they're in politics. So to be continued. I'm going to have a kind of Ignatian moment here, and pardon me for that, but I just had a physical reaction to what you just said, Heidi. I'm angry at this particular moment that we would enter a situation where now suddenly the bishops want to be very vocal about stepping up for drawing bright lines about communion when we were executing people, when we were putting people in cages on the border, when we were denying migrants of their rights of access to sanctuary, when we were going after sanctuary cities. Pardon me for my sort of heated temper here, but I can't fathom, I can't fathom how the bishops 
will now suddenly find their stones. Pardon me, but I, I just can't fathom how now suddenly that's the case where they couldn't find it in the previous administration. And David, you're spot on. And the other thing too is who was the one at the helm there? Not only was it President Trump as as the head of the administration, but it was Attorney General William Barr, a Roman Catholic. And we saw very little in the last days when there was this spree to murder people on behalf of the state to execute all these incarcerated folks. There was a, a statement that did come out from the USCCB condemning that. But again, it doesn't compare in the harshness or in the recrimination. Where was the denial of communion, et cetera, for Bill Barr? And again, I agree with Heidi, and I agree with the Holy Father, and I agree with all the doctors of the church over the last 2,000 years that point out that the Eucharist is not a weapon, nor is it a reward for the holy. I don't think it should be withheld from individuals. (laughs) The thing is, to Heidi's point, if they do pursue this sort of path, this adversarial, aggressive condemnatory path, I don't think there is hope, actually, for the USCCB as a body and for many of these bishops to regain moral authority. They've lost it, and it was clearly lost. They are speaking to a very small group at this point of like-minded folks, but a lot of these folks, as we saw with the insurrection on January 6th, believe that their exercise of Christianity and Catholicism involves this sort of really sick stuff. And so I'm not trying to project that onto the bishops or anything of that sort, But if they come out with some kind of statement, first of all, Cardinal Wilton Gregory, who is the president's local pastor, he's the bishop of Washington, D.C., he makes that call. He makes that call. doesn't matter what Gomez and others say. Yeah, and he's already made it. He's said that he will not deny it. Exactly. And that's the right right response. Canonically, it's the right response. Pastorally, it's the right response in terms of Christianity. And that brings up the point that we have to be careful when we say the bishops, we're not referring to every single one of them because Cardinal Gregory and now Cardinal Supich in this pretty bold speaking out are trying to distance themselves from the other bishops who are who are acting in this other way. And I think if there's a tiny sliver of hope, that maybe is something that we can take away from that. When we see that even now, as we're recording this on, on Monday morning, there's breaking news about a number of bishops who have signed a statement supporting LGBTQ youth. And I think this is going to infuriate those culture warrior bishops, the folks who are behind the condemnation of somebody like President Biden. And we'll have to see how that plays out. But I feel like this is, Heidi, like you said, those of us who have the inside track, the inside baseball, we know that there has been a lot of tension, a lot of acrimony behind the scenes. But the bishops have a responsibility to collegiality and fraternity, and they, in their own way, try to make that public, certainly in their meetings and so forth, even if sometimes the cracks show the light through. But now I I think it's all in the daylight. It's only going to become clearer. Well, I'm sure that we'll be picking up all of these issues and more as this season continues. But let's take a break for now. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dolt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks we get together to, well, you know the routine. As one of its last acts, the Trump administration released a 45-page document called the 1776 Commission Report. The document is clearly intended to serve as a rebuttal of sorts of the 1619 Project, a highly researched look at the legacies and histories of American slavery, which won the Pulitzer Prize for The New York Times. 
When the 1776 Commission report was released, the White House declared that it was, quote, a definitive chronicle of the American founding and a dispositive rebuttal of reckless re-education attempts that seek to reframe American history around the idea that the United States is not an exceptional country, but an evil one, end quote. The report was released on January 19th, the date of the federal holiday that commemorates the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., The timing seemed to be intended to send a message, and in fact, outgoing Secretary of State and 1776 Commission member Mike Pompeo underscored that message when he took to Twitter to declare that multiculturalism is anti-American, saying, quote, it's not what our country is about, wokeness, political correctness. It all points to one direction, authoritarianism cloaked as moral righteousness, end quote. Critics were quick to point out that no actual historians were involved in the commission that produced the report. Instead, the commission was made up of politicians, political scientists, homeschool curriculum writers, and campaign contributors. The commission report was also notable as it contained no citations, footnotes, or even sources from where it drew the data upon which it based its broad conclusions. The 1776 commission report has been roundly condemned by academic historians as well as civil rights leaders. More than this, the incoming Biden administration has fully repudiated the report and removed it from all government websites. But even though it was only an official document for a few days, the ideas and polemics it put forward are part of a long counter-narrative to scholarship that seeks to take an honest look at the checkered history of America. We could ask, David, what are the long-term effects of the 1776 Commission report? Well, I think that the long-term effects are tied up in actually looking at this long process that led to it being created. There is a real attempt, whether you're talking about the unearthing of the fact that Thomas Jefferson not only held slaves, but had relations with his slave Sally Hemings and fathered children with Sally Hemings, basically raping her because she could not legally give consent. This was a contentious issue 25, 30 years ago when it was first unearthed by historians. Because, And, and there was one historian who countered at the time saying, because Thomas Jefferson was a Southern gentleman and because no Southern gentleman would behave that way, there's no possibility that Thomas Jefferson could have ever fathered children with Sally Hemings. Okay, so that's the same kind of logic I'm going to say that we're finding here in the 1776 report. It's a logic that literally like dips a, a wide paintbrush in a coat of white paint and begins to wash over the scholarship that actually looks at the complexity of the history that we're dealing with here. And just to give you an example of what I mean, let me read the first paragraph of the 1776 commission report. In the course of human events, there have always been those who deny or reject human freedom, but Americans will never falter in defending the fundamental truths of human liberty proclaimed on July 4th, 1776. We will, we must always hold these truths. Okay, let me unpack that for just a second, because what follows from that in the next 45 pages is not truth. It is broadside innuendo, and it is assertion. It's not backed up by footnotes. It doesn't reflect the current state of scholarship in most cases, and it is presented univocally without any contradiction or challenge. Okay, that's not liberty, but what's going on here 
is an attempt to take these very important ideals that were written into that document on July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, and to use the love and the power that we as Americans hold for that document as a way of giving clearance to everything that follows in the next 45 pages of this report. If Basically, the assertion from that first paragraph is, if you believe the Declaration of Independence, you've got to believe everything that we're saying right now. And that's just wrong. It's not only wrong from the standpoint of liberty, it's wrong intellectually. There's a lot that we can unpack here, but I, I, I have actually read the report, so I'm loaded for bear on this. I'm not sure if you two have, but I would love to hear what you know about this, what you've heard about this, and where you're at with all of this. I've read through it. I can't sustain reading it from front to, to back and in any kind of sitting without getting enraged. Because it's preposterous. I Just to echo everything you've already said, David, there's nothing scholarly substantive here. There's nothing that a a basic, historically grounded fourth grade history textbook wouldn't immediately dispute. I also find deeply offensive the ways in which certain historical figures have been used and misused to justify what is a racist document that is seeking to cover up our actual history a history of genocide, a history of chattel slavery, a history of racist oppression, a history of misogyny, a history of homophobia. Pompeo and his untethered arrogance describing so-called identity politics as anti-American is crazy. There's so much, like you say, to unpack there, and I can go in that direction. But let me just point out the fact that they use, the authors of this screed, use Martin Luther King Jr., they blaspheme his memory on his on the his national historical commemorance day in this text they say here's one quote i'll just share from page 16 quote identity politics makes it less likely that racial reconciliation and healing can be attained by pursuing martin luther king junior's dream for america and upholding the highest ideals of our constitution and our declaration of independence end quote That kind of thing appears over and over again, and it's beyond offensive. Well, and what it is, is it's saying talking about racism is much worse than racism. If you actually name and are critical of the structures of racism, you're the bad person. And and let's just be polite about this because be, and, and what they say in the report is that a coalition of the faithful and a coalition of different people all came together and ended, quote, legal racism, unquote. That's from early in the document. It doesn't say that they actually dealt with the problem of racism. It just says now we have a legal fiat that says that we get to say that we're not racist anymore. And how dare you say that we're racist? Yeah, I'm going to admit here that I did not read the 45 page 1776 report. I did read uh, several news stories about it, but it was quickly apparent to me what it was. And this attempt to discredit the 1619 project, which has now become this lightning rod in discussions about race. The 1619 project is an amazing piece of scholarship and journalism and rightly run the Pulitzer Prize. And I have found it very helpful in thinking about the history of race and racism in our country and where we are in the present based on our history. It's really important to think about our country's ideals, to love our country, to to note the things that are positive about our country. I don't have a problem with that. But to do that under the guise of ignoring the the sins of our past and the sins of our country and to somehow paint wokeness 
as some sort of pejorative negative thing, I find really abhorrent and anti-Christian. Part of our faith is about celebrating the goodness of people, but also recognizing our sinfulness and our original sinfulness and our sinfulness as individuals and as in structures. Uh, And so I think the 1619 Project, I found very helpful in naming our past sins so that we could then reckon with them in a real way and move forward. This attempt, as you say, David, to whitewash is very problematic. Well, and one of the pieces of this is the kind of things that are left out of the narrative of this report. And let me give you a structural example. So when you read the report, the report itself ends, and then there are a series of appendices. The very first appendix is the Declaration of Independence. And this is a very important document named again and again in this 1776 report. Between the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776, and 1787, when we actually began to adopt the constitution that we currently have, there was another form of government created by a document called the Articles of Confederation. It was a failure. Okay, so one of the things that's important to realize is that between declaring these ideals and trying to have a form of governance that works, we have tried things and that they have failed. And when they have failed, we have tried again and made them better. And so to jump over from the Declaration of Independence to say now we're in a a perfect functioning system is to deny the basic history of the United States. We have already tried version 1.0 of the USA. It didn't work. We're in currently version 2.0, maybe version 2.5. And we need to have a narrative that says... And some of those documents maybe aren't working so well for us now either. I think there's a great irony in here, too. And the irony is that the U.S. Constitution, particularly the Bill of Rights, protects free speech, upholds the free press and these other things in order to balance uh, a kind of public gaslighting, a kind of authoritarian control. I think what is great about the United States is that we can actually have something like the New York Times study that recounts the 400-year-old history of our grievous original sin and its persistence. I I think about this kind of, what this document reads to me as, and what it is, which is propaganda, is the kind of thing that in, you know, that the U.S. is very fond of condemning other societies for. We condemn North Korea and China and Russia and Cuba for censorship, for propaganda, for false narratives and the rewriting of history and the promotion of conspiracy theories. And this is exactly what this administration was doing. These are lies. They're obfuscating. They're they're attempts, as you say, David, to whitewash and that and all the figurative implications of that are actual history. And I agree with you, Heidi, that it's very anti-Catholic in a way because we begin every liturgy by acknowledging what we have done and failed to do. And I think that's really important that racism, sexism, homophobia, all these grave structural sins of which we are responsible for and have yet to fully address in our country need to be named and acknowledged. And when I think about our history, I was thinking about this because I knew we would be talking about this on the podcast when I was running this morning. I was thinking about all of the horrifying, horrible, sinful, evil things this country has perpetuated, not only on its own residents but and citizens, but on, on other parts of the world that we regularly brush right over. 
I think of just in the last century of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We are the only nation on this planet that has ever deployed nuclear weapons against anybody in real time. I think about the Vietnam conflict. I think about what was perpetrated in Iraq and the aughts. I think about the way the COVID-19 pandemic has been mismanaged over the last year. I think about the systemic racism evident in the killings of unarmed people of color at the hands of law enforcement and other authorities. I think about all these things that this document seeks to deny and to erase and to mitigate. And that in and of itself is sinful and should be condemned. Yeah, I would just say I agree that the term propaganda is appropriate here, Dan, and it fits right in with the nationalistic or even the Christian nationalistic kind of movement that we saw under Trumpism and that I think we have to admit is not going to go away immediately just because he's no longer president. It's encouraging to me that this document has been removed, but it's still there and feeding that that segment of our population that is open to that kind of po- propaganda and, and how that pro- kind of propaganda feeds their broader mission. One thing that worries me is the way that religion, the role that religion plays in this 1776 document. And let me give you an example of what I mean. I'm going to quote from it again. This is from Appendix 2 of the document that is talking specifically about religion and uh, civil faith, if you will. It says, We must refocus on the proposition that united this nation from the beginning, the proposition of the Declaration of Independence that there are, quote, self-evident truths, unquote, which unite all Americans under a common creed. But it is almost impossible to hold this creed, which describes what and who we are, without reference to the Creator as the ultimate source of human equality and natural rights. Okay, here's what's dangerous about that statement. America is a land that has people who have a monotheistic faith. America is also a land of people with polytheistic faith. It's a land of agnostics. It's a land of secularists. It's a land of people who very fervently have no faith at all and do not reference that at all. What this document is saying is that the only way that people can have access to the kind of rights that we're talking about, the kind of protections that we're talking about, is if they share in this common creed, which is presented as a monotheistic Christian creed. Okay, That, for me, is problematic because even as they're saying that America had no civil religion, they're bringing civil religion in from the back door and saying, but by the way, this is what you have to actually be a real member of our club, and you can't really do this unless you're religious in some way, and in particular, monotheistically religious. To me... Even though I am a person who professes a monotheistic faith, even though I am a person who is wanting to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I recognize the importance of keeping a secular sphere where my atheist brother and sister, where my Buddhist brother and sister, where where my Baptist brother and sister, God help us, all can come and be together and share in the same goodness, the same common wheel, the same common, the common goods of our country. That to me is really important, and it's being erased in this document. And that's something that I think we should be thinking about too. Just to get granular for a minute too, there's a list of about five or six things in this text, subheadings, that the authors describe as challenges to America. And they list things like fascism and communism. And there's a category called progressivism, which would kind of merit uproarious laughter if it weren't so pathetic, sad, and dangerous. You know what's considered the progressive in the United States? Things like 
FDR's saving of the country and part of saving of the world in World War II. It's the establishment of social security. It's the establishment of voting rights for women and for minoritized communities. It is about, again, the irony here, this statement undermines its own claim because the irony is that we are not actually living up to the ideals as spelled out philosophically in our founding documents and that what they're describing as problematically progressive is actually how we attain that. There, there are parallels, of course, in the Catholic Church where people who want to claim that, quote, doctrine does not develop, you know, as if these kind of diluted and immature and unsubstantiated claims of a propositional view of faith, as if God dictated the catechism and, and, and handed it down from above or dictated, you know, the code of canon law or pick whatever you want. You know, that is not actually what the church understands theology or doctrine or moral norms to be. And and there's a parallel here civilly, as you're saying, David. There's the religious problem, but there's also this, it reads so comically. It's poorly written. It's poorly argued. As you said, there are no footnotes. There, there, are, no, there are no sources here. This is just conjecture. It's fairy tale, but it's a dangerous one. I'm just going to circle back to where we started with uh, Joe Biden and his Catholicism is such a contrast to what you were describing there, David, as the need for everybody to be a monotheist or a Christian in order to be an American. So Joe Biden is not perfect. We need to hold his feet to the fire to see if he's going to be progressive enough, maybe. But also, he but he still will be this example of someone who whose faith informs his life and his politics in a way that doesn't prescribe his faith for every American. So hopefully we'll see how that develops over the next weeks and months. So I'm sure that we'll have a lot more to say about not necessarily this report, but the ideas contained in this report. So on behalf of Heidi and Father Dan, I want to thank you for listening to this first episode of Season 8. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, and we're looking forward to being with you then. This has been The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have five seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>